All right, podcast number 47. Pretty soon, we're going to break the magic 50 number, but for right now, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We've got Damien Anton with us. And Damien's a firefighter, rope access technician, Ronin team member, Ronin team leader, uh, all that sort of jazz. And what we're going to be chatting about with Damien today is firefighter training to kind of rope access and that competition rescue, like what differences, what's the good and the bad of that. Uh, the team lead training versus sort of the team lead or, you know, the senior man, fire officer type training you'd get in the fire service if there's differences of that. And then last but not least, we're going to chat with him about Grimp Japan, where he was the team leader in February. So welcome to the podcast again, Damien. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. No worries. And uh, Damien just completed a crawl to crawl bump downstairs for our <laughs> online uh, yeah. online videos. So how'd that go for you? A little, a little added pressure considering uh, it's not a, a rescue that we do very often, but uh, I think it went all right. I think it did okay. So Right on. Yeah. Um, what will be... Uh, that's, you know what, as a total aside, one of the funniest things when you helped us out a couple of weeks ago, the biggest feedback we got on the thing was, hey, Damien got a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I finally, uh, I had to pull the trigger on it and uh, I got it done just before things got a little weird and all the salons shut down. But uh, yeah, a new me. A new you. Yeah. So um, let's go into the firefighting background a little bit. You came to us how many years ago? 2015 I joined Ronan, so about five years ago now. Okay, and so what training did you have as a firefighter when you came over? So I guess, I mean, my training dates back to 2006 is kind of when I got involved in, you know, confined space, rope rescue stuff, NFPA style. Um, I was making my way uh, to become a career firefighter at the time. And I did the confined space training, awareness, ops, and tech. Um, really enjoyed it. Found it quite a bit of a uh, challenge, but enjoyed the rope aspect of it. So uh, naturally, my next progression was to do the rope technician kind of course. Um, and then in about 2010, so a few years later, um, I had an opportunity on my fire department to get uh, an instructor position. Um, I was going to be the junior instructor on the uh, department, but uh, luckily it fell down to me. Um, and part of that was taking all of the same training I'd done before, um, the confined space and rope rescue stuff, um, again from the beginning. So by that time, I had a chance to do each, um, I guess, discipline twice, right up to technician level. Um, but my world, my exposure up until that point was only NFPA. Um, all I knew was half-inch rope, steel twist-lock carabiners, NFPAG, um, two-line systems, um, and it was kind of embedded in me and ingrained in me. Um, that's how you do rescue. That's that's what it is. Steel toe boots, navy blue uniform, and uh, NFPAG. So um, for a while, uh, as much as I really enjoyed reading up on what other people were doing and seeing what was going on out there, I always had to come back to my roots and default to NFPA style, style training. Uh, so much so that when I bought my first uh, harness and carabiners, all of my carabiners were steel Petzl Vulcan carabiners <laughs> that weighed about a quarter of a kilo each. And um, I remember getting raked over the coals showing up for my training, my first uh, training session with Ronan here. 
<laughs> I'm laughing because I can remember that too. I was that guy. So um, that was my world before, I guess, joining Ronan or really kind of um, opening up to see, um, you know, what else is out there and the, and the better techniques that fit most of the world, say, for North uh, American fire departments. Well, it's better than the guy that rhymes with him that showed up with a brake rack to grit day. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Dupuy will never live that one down, but uh, bless him. <laughs> uh, so, did you find that there was a large curve in the training change from going from NFPA into what we were running at Ronin and rope access, or would you consider rope access and what we were running at Ronin close enough that it was just kind of one curve, or was there a couple bumps in there? Uh, I'd say it was it was almost a complete change in mindset. Um, you know, coming from the fire department world where you're looking at MPDs and figure eights on a bite and butterflies and you kind of stick to that. Um, anything out of the realm, if you start doing bowlings and clove hitches, people start to get a little squirrely with you. Um, so the, the mindset change was a bit of a steep learning curve. Um, you know, in the sense, I remember seeing uh, when we were doing some training, guys whipping out 10 millimeter Dyneema slings and doing their anchor with that. Um, and I think if you showed that to your average Joe firefighter that doesn't have much experience outside of the fire department, most of them would shit themselves looking at it. It's <laughs> all right. We, this is, <laughs> I click the not made for kids when, yeah, I, okay. when I do this. Carry Sorry, on. My apologies. And um, so for me to kind of wrap my head around that was, was a bit of a challenge. Um, and I remember going down to Rigging for Rescue in, uh, um, down in Vegas, probably in 2010-ish, maybe 2012, somewhere around there. And uh, that's kind of when my eyes really started to open up in terms of what people are doing um, with climbing devices, you know, whether belay devices like ATCs or Grigri's, 11 mil rope, Dyneema slings, um, pretty much the whole kit. You pick any of it, save for a carabiner. Uh, you wouldn't find in your typical fire department uh, cash, gear cash. So, yeah, it was definitely a, a steep learning curve, but it was a challenge that I was pretty excited about. Now, do you feel that the fire department could benefit from this, or should the fire department just stay in their box? No, I, I'm 100% an advocate of fire departments across North America, obviously particularly mine, um, of, of getting out of that box. Uh, for me, one of the biggest things was doing sprat rope access. I think there's no better way to get um, a rescue technician confidence on rope, give him the tools and the techniques to be able to um, save himself, save whoever else is on rope. Um, I'm a big advocate of people kind of working outside of the box and going away from sim you know, two simple uh, ways of picking somebody off, one with, with or without a litter, which is kind of your black and white. Um, direction that we get uh, in the fire department so um, I'm a huge advocate of guys getting training um, outside of the fire department and, and most importantly for me that's because I find we have a tendency to uh, drink our own bathwater for lack of a better way of describing it right it's always a senior guy handing down what he's learned from the guy above him and the guy above him and if you challenge somebody as to why they do it that way quite often it's well because so-and-so showed me this way and so doing all of these courses or doing this training outside of the fire department um, will kind of help dissolve some of those misnomers out there, but also give people the confidence and know-how to, to react to almost any kind of rescue, really. 
So yeah, I'm, a, I'm absolutely a huge advocate of people within the fire department getting training that they feel may never apply to what they do, but I guarantee you they'll pick up so many little tidbits that will make them a better rescue technician. Okay, so of all the training that you've done regarding rope, rope rescue, rope access, confined space, what do you feel was the most relevant, or is there one that was the most relevant for a rescuer, for that rescue technician, like this particular thing I learned here or there? It can be a skill, it can be a course. Yeah, uh, I, would, I would have to say again, talking about rope access. For me, rope access was something that, before I did the official course, uh, my level one a few years ago, um, you know, I felt like I had the skills I could do them, but doing the actual four-day course and then the evaluation on the fifth day um, really cemented into me, um, you know, how you should handle your tools on a rope and the basic principles behind doing rescue on a rope in general. Um, I found that was a big game changer, again, despite feeling like I had the skills beforehand. Um, but, you know, I've had the privilege of doing courses um, with some, some really wise people in the industry and I find everybody has something to offer in terms of what they think is best. Um, that being said, I'm always that kind of guy that feels like I got to challenge the instructor um, and not take everything they say word for word. Um, there's a lot of people out there that I really admire and I feel like they're mentors in, in the rescue world. However, a lot of the things that they say I'll completely disregard because I have strong beliefs otherwise. Um, you know, You're that guy. <laughs> I'm that guy, yeah. I mean, you'll have guys, obviously, that preach um, using two tension rope systems with two MPDs, um, but then you train with guys from Europe that they're showing you single rope techniques using a petzl stop, like completely different ends of the spectrum. And so, um, you know, you really have to be the guy that takes, takes everything, analyzes it, you know, kind of absorbs it, and then decides what fits best in each particular application okay um you teach for ronin and you also instruct in your fire department um is there a difference in the prerequisites or the training standards and i'm not trying to put one up on a pedestal over another here i just we get a lot of questions from firefighters that say hey if i'm gonna go do this out in the public or i'm gonna go to a grimp day competition you know, what standards should I look at? And obviously you're, you're kind of leaning towards the rope access yeah. and the more advanced style rescue training for that. And just with the instruction and the mm -hmm. instructor level training, what's your thought process between fire and private sector? So, I mean, fire department, um, you know, specifically mine as an instructor on there, um, you definitely have to work within a much tighter box. Um, here are the tools that we're going to use. And despite there possibly being a better or safer way out there, um, you've got to work within the, these confinements because everybody's got to be on the same page. So I work for a relatively small department. We only have just over 100 members. And the way we operate is we've got um, uh, instructors on shift at all times um, who would be expected to kind of lead a rescue. However, everybody gets trained up to a pseudo NFP operations level. So there's a certain expectation from each member that they can perform particular skills. Um, so when it comes to instructing on the fire department, um, there's a bit of, man of a mandate that I only show them um, those particular skills and work at getting them uh, refined at those skills. 
So even though I may want to show them a cool new piece of kit pedestal just dropped or a really cool new anchoring system I learned from somebody over in Germany, um, that stuff is kind of outside of the box and will only muddle the water a little bit. So, you know, I'm kind of directed to stay away from that and stay kind of uh, within the lesson plan. However, the beautiful thing about working with Ronan is quite often with these private clients, they're thirsty to kind of find out what's going on, what's new, what's the latest, what's the greatest, what do you have to show us? And so um, I really enjoy those courses where we get to show off the coolest new devices that have just hit the market and you know what, what industry best practice is considered these days. But then kind of go outside of the box a little bit and show them, um, you know, if you really know what you're doing, um, you can start to push the limits of this gear and you can start rigging systems that are a little more intricate. Um, and then you just kind of balance that based on the particular clients, what they're looking for, and obviously the skill level that you're working with. But you get that latitude where you can really fine tune a course for a private client um, to give them what they want and maybe even a little bit more. So it's two completely different styles of instructing that I have to, to balance depending on what uniform I'm wearing. So it's always that challenge for me. Fair enough. Um, <clears throat> you're, as an instructor, also responsible for some change in the fire department to try mm -hmm. to bring in new stuff. Yeah. How difficult is that and what, what advice could you give to firefighters that are listening to this that are just keen as snot and getting shot in the head every time <laughs> they put their hand up? Yeah, so... Um, I, my biggest learning lesson was coming back from rigging for rescue. I just didn't remember it. Um, Kevin uh, Koprick was our instructor down there, super brilliant guy. And he showed us some really cool uh, modifications to anchoring. And he was really trying to emphasize how important it was to get a good anchor um, with your fall line. So, of course, I came back to the department. I was super excited about these new techniques. And I really wanted to show the guys, like, hey... Um, you know, here's what I learned and, and I think we should all endorse this moving forward um, because the old habit in the fire department, especially in our uh, suburban environment, is you find the biggest tree and you work off of that tree. So here I was showing them how to do multi-point anchors and to really fine-tune it and I remember um, giving my demonstration and turning around and nobody said a word to me. They were just kind of staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> and that right there was a bit of a light switch where I realized I had gone way too far down a, a different road. So um, coming back a little bit, I started to realize, okay, you know what? Um, just because I have you know, discovered these latest and greatest ways and I want to implement them, um, it doesn't mean everybody's on board or is as quick to jump on that idea as I am. So um, my big takeaway from that day a few years ago was uh, to drip feed and what I mean by that is if you want to implement something um, You've got to do it really slowly and the way I typically try to do it is I'll show it to my crew um, So just in an intimate setting we'll have a little kind of casual training session Once I get a little buy-in from them word kind of spreads and if I do a shift trade I'll show it to another crew and I kind of keep doing that till there's a little more exposure and I kind of feel out the uh, vibe from the other guys and only once do I feel like it's being endorsed or supported um, do I then kind of take it to the instructor group. So I'll pull aside some instructors if I have the opportunity and be like, hey, check out this new piece of kit. I really think it'll help us out in these particular situations. Um, you know, I think it's a cool piece of kit. It's versatile. Here's what we can do with it. 
Um, and then if I feel like I have the support of those guys, then again, I take it up the chain of command to, um, you know, our chief of training, um, who ultimately kind of green lights any changes or purchase of equipment. That being said, that process will probably take about six months if I do it right. Um, but it has been successful for me uh, in the past, changing little things. Um, for example, going to two tension rope systems. So historically, before the MPDs, we were brake bar racks and um, tandem prusik belays. And it took me a while to get guys to come around to the two tension rope system, which they did eventually. And now my next task are the clutches. So um, an expensive piece of kit that would also require us to, to drop down from half inch rope to 11 mil rope. So there's money attached to it, um, but there's also convincing the old school guys, hey, here's a legitimate reason we want to move forward. Um, and I try to kind of convince them that uh, they want to do it versus I want to do it. So if I can give any advice out there, it's again, just to move slowly, change in the fire department, uh, um, happens really slowly. You know, as a saying, at least in our department, I'm sure it's common that there's two things firefighters hate. It's it's the way things are and change. So it, go work slowly at it. That's that's my big uh, my big takeaway. Uh, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> um, team leading. Now this is an interesting one I find in the fire department a lot. As the instructor on your shift, you would be required to lead a rescue. Are you a certified fire officer? I am not, no, I'm not. And in fact, to this day, um, 10 years later, I'm still the junior um, technical rescue instructor. Um, however, tend to be quite often the lead technical rescue <laughs> instructor. So there's, there's often a conflict of interest in terms of um, if people deem me qualified to be the leader versus people see me to have the experience and the training to be the leader. So um, it's very crew dependent when we go on rescues. <laughs> well, that's interesting because, I mean, the fire department's put you in a position that you maybe want some leadership training mm -hmm. and some supervisory training, yet because of seniority, lockstep seniority, sure, yeah. I work in the same system, yeah. um, you don't get it. Do you feel that that's fair for instructors? Like, should FARP, which for the listeners, Technical High Angle Rope Rescue Program, mm -hmm. which is the funding body for fire departments for technical rescue in BC, simple definition, should FARP include some sort of supervisory training or some sort of fire officer training or some sort of team lead training as part of that mandate for those instructors? Yeah, I mean, certainly it may be a stretch to kind of get fire officer, you know, even level one, but some leadership training um, would, be, would be instrumental. You know, we do fire service instructor level one, I believe, as part of that, or at least that's a condition for us. Um, which is supposed to help you with the instructional side, but there is that expectation that you're going to lead people um, on a rescue, you know, in the, in the heat of the moment. So, um, you know, I've found the best way to approach it is to kind of win the trust of your crew over. And certainly most officers I work with are more than happy to kind of take a step back to let me run things. Um, but I see that being a different story for other instructors. And perhaps those instructors, uh, myself included, um, could do with additional leadership training and that might give not just um, us um, more confidence but it'll give everybody around us more confidence in our capabilities so yeah it's definitely a, a challenge in terms of um, you know if officers I guess have that trust in you but um, to me that's something that you also have to kind of win over um, in your time there you've got to gain it a little bit so um, it'd be a bonus to get that training for sure. 
So here you run as a team lead, obviously, yeah. and you ran your first team lead or first competition as a team lead in Japan in February. So how was that? Like, was it what you expected it to be? Or? Uh, I don't know what I expected it to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? It was, it was a roller coaster of emotions. And I think, um, you know, I've had the privilege of working alongside you guys on Grim Teams and obviously here just in day-to-day work for, for a few years. Um, but when all of a sudden you're the guy everybody's looking at, uh, it's a different ball game, and you know that starts right from pre-event, working up to it, um, handling some of the logistics, looking at how we're going to borrow equipment, get equipment. I'm just um, going to intervene so sure. our listeners understand. Our team lead isn't just responsible for saying go on game day. They're the yeah. pre-up training, the logistics, sure. the team composition, the and he can delegate or yeah. she can delegate some of these around hotels, car rentals, but ultimately that entire event falls on that team lead. It's like, you're going to Japan, here's your team, slot them, find them, delegate them, make it happen. So sorry, carry yeah, on. Yeah, no, totally, right? So it's not so much just show up on the day of and, and now you're that guy. Um, we're talking months before the competition. Um, you need to make sure everything's in line and in place. And as you say, you can delegate and all the guys in the team are super helpful in that. Um, but there is the expectation that you ensure it gets done. So as you say, accommodation, car rental, training ahead of time, um, you know, where and when do we meet, uh, what equipment do we need to bring, who's bringing it. So, you know, months before uh, the day of the event, um, the, the pressure's on, the stress begins. Um, luckily for me, we had the experience of Grimp 2019 in Namur, um, so it was the same team that was going to Japan, um, and that was a huge benefit because I kind of knew um, what everybody's strengths and weaknesses were, the expectations, and who I could rely on to do particular things. So um, I felt relatively comfortable um, on the flight on the way to Japan. However, there's always that gut feeling of what have I not done, what have I forgotten? And uh, it didn't go without its hiccups, but... Um, uh, it was was an adventure from the beginning. There's no doubt about that. Well, you right now hold the record for the highest <laughs> numbered team. We, that that team came in fourth in Japan, beating out the fifth place in Namur <laughs> in 2017 or something. Yeah. I think you actually tied with China. There was a fourth in China as well. That's you were on that team too. That's right in uh, Chongqing. In China. Yeah. I think that was 2018, perhaps. Yeah. So, so um, from that point of view, as the team leader. What's it like with a high-performance team? And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of preference that question. Everybody on this team could lead this team. Everybody on this team has probably led this team. Yeah. And so from that point of view, what kind of leadership style are you thinking of when you walk into that situation? Yeah, so for me, I mean, that weighed on me going into to the event. And, um, you know, one thing that's not lost on me is that some of the guys on the team were doing rescue as when I was a little toddler. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you looking One at One of me? these guys in this room here uh, has been doing rescue for decades, long before me. So for me now to be in a position where I'm calling the shots and leading him um, was a little extra weight. But um, going in with experienced members was a reassurance and definitely gave me that little extra confidence and comfort. Um, but at the same time, it presented that challenge in terms of how much uh, direction do I give? Um, 
I'm, I'm not a big fan of the micromanagement style. I prefer to sit back. But there is the expectation of leading the team, getting everybody on the same page. So, um, you know, one of the, the logistical challenges is that our team is kind of spread across the province of BC. And so we didn't get a chance to work together as a team under my leadership until two days before. Just for uh, people that are listening overseas, there's probably 600 kilometers between the outside two people of this team. So that's an entire country over (laughs) there. So we landed in Japan not having trained as a team (laughs) under my leadership. So um, that little extra anxiety was definitely there. Um, And two days before, I finally got the opportunity. And then again, I'm still feeling everybody out. What are their expectations from me? Um, in terms of am I giving too much direction, too little direction? You know, I've got about four or five hours of training to figure this out before game day. Um, but one thing that quickly um, kind of put me in my comfort zone is that very little needs to be said. Um, I can give direction as simple as, hey, Mike, I need um, a two-tension rope lower set up right back there. And that's virtually all I need to do. I know... He can do the anchoring. He's going to give me what I want with the two ends of the rope right away so I can start rigging the other end. And, you know, he's going to rig it through devices. He's going to get it safety checked. All of those little check marks are going to be done without any further direction. And what I came to discover on event day and the following day, so Saturday and Sunday, was um, I don't know if it's my particular leadership style that's unique, but I think it might be us universally here within within Ronan, um, is that we don't, talk that much we don't we don't manage that much we don't lead that much during the heat of the moment and we got some consistent feedback at least I did that I needed to say more I needed to kind of um, you know give more direction and be more involved with what was going on I think there was an expectation of not just telling somebody the rigger to go rig me a two-tension rope lower but I needed to tell him um, where exactly needed to be and what devices I wanted him to use. And then once I gave him that task, I needed to go follow up with him to ensure he was doing it correctly, um, which isn't particularly my style. I don't think it's a lot of people's style around here. I think once we get going, for the most part, everybody knows what they need to do. And so we just do it. So um, that was a, a, a pro and a con of such a, a high-level team is that I didn't need to give them that much direction, but the con was I got suckered into not given too much direction, which um, was successful for us. However, the judges and the people um, you know, involved in the competition wanted to see more. And so that was a bit of a learning curve I needed to figure out Saturday night in time for Sunday. Well, do you think that's more of a culture thing then? I think so. And I had a chat with one of the, the you know, controllers over there about, I think that's just different styles. That's what I think it boils down to. Um, I don't need to say much to get something done. And virtually never do I need to follow up because I feel like I've given enough direction and it's been accomplished, um, you know, to my satisfaction. So I'm happy with leaving it be versus following up with with the rigor just to do it to appease somebody. Um, But we've had these comments in previous competitions, too, where other people don't feel like we work um, as tight knit as a team as they, I think, have it in their head we should be. Um, however, I think that's just a different style, a different culture here, that we're, we're content with little direction and, and getting the job done um, together, kind of almost behind the scenes. Now, I'm going to preference something here too, just because you may not understand it in these terms. 
from the military, there's something, <clears throat> excuse me, something called TTMPs, Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures. And with Ronan being a predominant, like almost over half military, guys are used to running off of TTMPs. You don't get told how to do an immediate action in the Army. Mm -hmm. You come under effective fire, mm -hmm. double tap, dash down, crawl, observe, communicate, sites, fire. It, it's, uh, that was what I was taught in my day. I'm sure it's changed. Obviously, you can see they drill these TTMPs into your heads, mm -hmm. so your immediate actions are immediate. Mm -hmm. And I think with us as Ronin, it's not that we're non-flexible, but if we're running a TTRS on clutches, there's only so many ways to rig it. And so we kind of almost fall back to TTMPs. And now as a guy that probably never heard that particular, mm -hmm. what a TTMP is, you'd probably more call it an OG or an SOG in the fire sure. department. Do you feel that a lot of that gets covered because we've worked together for so long and those tactics, techniques, and procedures are just, if we get X, we do Y? Yeah, you know, and I think we've almost established, you know, our SOPs, our standard operating procedures without formally establishing them. Um, you know, for example, if we've, if we've got to do a tension line skate block, um, we virtually know who is going to be in what position and what their expectations are and how it's all going to be rigged um, before we even get going. And that has a lot to do with, um, you know, everybody has a skill set where they can adapt to any environment. So if you're used to rigging something on a particular anchor using that particular sling and now all of a sudden that sling doesn't work or that anchor is in a different spot, um, there's the, you have the capability and I have full faith that you have the capability to adapt to that so you know we have our kind of unwritten standard operating procedures in terms of we're going to do a tension scape lock your job is to do XYZ and however you accomplish that I'm not too fussed about so yeah I think you know it's just a matter of uh, I guess it comes back yeah to different styles different cultures and we just have those unwritten rules because we've worked together for so long that um, we just know it's going to get done. Everybody on that team was so highly skilled and so highly talented that uh, never once did I have to wonder if the task I've given them is kind of above them um, or if they need you know, to be micromanaged through it. It was just, you know what to do, go off and do it. And that, for people out there that would see our videos and stuff of Grimp Days and things like that, you need to take that context into mind. A lot of times we'll start hamming it up for the camera, for lack of a better term, where, hey, the controllers want us to do more. You'll have the guy in the patent pose like pointing and stuff, <laughs> which is totally unrealistic and we uh -huh. never do. But, hey, we got the check mark in the uh -huh. box because it is an event. It is a competition after all, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's something we have to keep in mind. I mean, everything we do is a little different to maybe to how we do it in the real world because we know we're getting judged or scored, um, you know, what you have it. But... Uh, yeah, it's something that you have to keep in mind. A lot of what we do is competition style, but we could probably run many of those scenarios without saying many words to each other at the end of the day and get it done just as well and just as quick. So some things we ended up doing just for for the optics, I guess, for the judges as well. So a couple of questions here. You're going to sure. figure out the second one as soon as I say the first. What was the easiest, in your mind, rescue that we did in Japan as a team leader? What was the, what was the one you walked in and went, yeah, this is gravy. We've got this bag. We'll see you later. Uh, well, <laughs> there, there was one that was, was super easy, a little city, which was essentially we just had to do a slope rescue up, you know, like a thousand steps or something ridiculous. <laughs> oh, I remember um, that. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of true rescues, um, one of the ones I think we really knocked out of the pot was, uh, and if I could describe it for you, so we... We started up on an upper parking lot um, up against kind of some guardrails. That was our starting point. 
and then there was probably around a 30 foot slope steep slope um, down and then there was probably another 20 foot drop um, vertical drop to the road below so we were in a parking lot down a slope then down vertical and the patient was down on the side of the road below we had to rig off of the guardrails um, obviously send somebody down package the patient get them up and uh, come back and um, we uh, had the fortune of doing something very similar uh, in Grimp no more back in 2017 2018 <laughs> off the citadel somewhere around there um, so this kind of play was already in my head and one thing that we did I think may have been unique uh, at least in terms of what I saw throughout the day um, was right away we went to the counterbalance method um, we had virtually no room to set up a, a true haul system unless we used the slope but obviously resetting would be quite a challenge and we had to break it into kind of two phases one was obviously getting the patient up um, the vertical portion up to that edge and then once they were on the slope up uh, back to the railing so with only five members to accomplish that um, and time not really on your side um, we really had to kind of um, separate but everybody had to have an awareness of what was happening outside of their tasks so um, you know I believe it was perhaps Norm and Pat um, our two rescuers that were sent right to the patient and their task was to get the patient up the vertical uh, portion onto the slope and then if I remember right it was yourself and Jason that were rigging and ready for a counterbalance and um, we had that patient packaged and up the vertical portion and then from there it was a smooth transition to you guys on the counterbalance and Pat and I took over coming up the slope and um, I may be mistaken but I think our time was somewhere around 18 minutes or something. Really I think it was close. 15. Yeah, it was. The, the counterbalance is on our YouTube site for people oh, is that want to really? see it. Okay. It's the one where Jay and I are going down the hill. You can see yeah. the, the guardrail in there. Yeah, it's not um, the full rescue, but yeah. Yeah, and so in terms of easiest rescue, it maybe uh, felt easy because I think we did so well. There's virtually nothing that would have changed in that rescue. Um, we did remarkably well and we got feedback kind of also justifying that we did really, really well. Um, and so because that one felt like it was textbook, it was a fun and uh, again, not to, to downplay it, but uh, maybe it was one of the easier rescues, at least for us. Um, you know, some other teams may have seen it different, but... And that's where I think well. a lot of people need to understand too is in the military, I go back to that because the fire service doesn't do it as much. In the military, we would train a drill over and over and over again. This was my... 12th or 13th Grimp Day, what was it for you? Jeez. Uh, Including the ones you've done staff on, like North yeah, America. I want to say it's probably about 7th, 8th, somewhere on So there. when you're running a team where the junior man probably has three Grimp Days under his belt, <laughs> and the senior man maybe has 13, yeah. you've seen a lot of these scenarios before. So it's like, hey, we're going to do playbook, you know. Totally. Long uh, yard pass in the left cut. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's not super black and white, but it's kind of like, okay, well, we know our objectives. We've got vertical and we've got a slope. Uh, you can at least narrow it down to a couple things you're going to be doing. Um, you know you're not doing something like a skate block. You know you're not doing <laughs> high lines. So it kind of helps narrow it down to uh, maybe a couple different techniques. And then uh, it's up to, you know, the leader, you know, myself in that situation to kind of figure out, okay, I believe this is going to be the best way to move forward. Let's do it. And so... Where do you like to be as the leader in those types of rescues? This, that was one of my challenges as a team leader as well. Is I, I, I like to be hands-on. I want to be clipping carabiners in and rigging this and rigging that. And um, 
to a point I still believe as a five-person rescue, you have to be doing that. To be efficient, the team lead has to get involved somehow. Um, I know there's a lot of mentality out there that team leads should just stand back and should be overseeing. Uh, there's definitely merit in that. Um, however, uh, if in, I had to situate myself um, ideally so I could get eyes on what's happening down below, so I kind of have that in the back of my mind, um, and then I'm also able to look up top to see what's going on up top. Um, I was trying my best to always think one step ahead, and sometimes I needed to kind of just step back a bit so I can formulate my thoughts. Um, and anticipate what you guys were doing and see what they were doing and see if it was all going to come together. Um, but sometimes I'm not the best in that position. So for those that know me know that I'm not exactly vertically um, enhanced. I don't have much height behind me. <laughs> so when it comes to being at the edge, sometimes, uh, you know, we sent uh, Jason Heinsen to the edge. He's a lot taller. Um, and he was awesome at it. He was, he was really, really good in that position. So um, I have the trust that I can send Jason there and he's going to relay any pertinent information to me if I can't see anything. And then I can kind of come back and help um, with the hauling or the rigging or whatever it may be. So it's all situational dependent and obviously terrain dependent, what you can see, what you can't see. Um, ideally, obviously, I'm, I'm a little more hands-free, but um, with only five people and sometimes two people committed over the edge, uh, there's, there's no doubt you've got to get your hands on and get dirty. Okay, what was the toughest rescue? You knew I was going to ask you the uh, yeah, easiest. Yeah. You knew this was coming. So the toughest one for me, if I remember right, so in the parking lot just outside the event were two sea cans. <laughs> that, uh, so we're talking, they were on, what were they on? They were on something. They were on wheels. They are on wheels, so I think in total height must have been... 12? Yeah, 12 to 15, 15 feet, yeah. somewhere on there. And they were probably placed about 40 feet apart. And... Uh, your objective was to get uh, the patient from one side of the sea cans, if I remember right, um, up and over to the other side of the first sea can without anything touching in the middle. Um, so you've got rigging happening, you know, a total of about 50, 60 feet apart. Um, you've lost visual on one side unless you kind of adjust constantly. Uh, you've got no high points. Uh, the guy up top has to be on some kind of fall restraint. Um, and there's very little, if nothing, to anchor to up there. Uh, you've got edge transitions to manage with the litter. Um, and you've only got five guys. And so this one was a real uh, challenge for everybody involved, I think. Um, for me, it was definitely pushing my comfort zone because, uh, you know, I believe I sent uh, you for a side. That one first, right? And then, you know, it was like, okay, I trust Mark's doing what I want him to do. However, <laughs> again, I can't see anything. And uh, there was so much going on because I had guys on top of the sea can. I got riggers near side, uh, mugs out of sight, far side. Um, and then part of the challenge is you're always playing within the, the rules that they give you. Um, one of those sea cans, ones, uh, the challenges was you couldn't get within six feet of the can itself. Um, That's right. You had yeah. to bring them. So think about it you're on the far side of a sea can you can't get within six feet of it go over that sea can that's right yeah. through the 60 foot of the middle of the yeah. sea cans though touching the ground over the next sea yeah. can and you got to land six feet on the far totally. edge yeah that was right yeah so it's not even like you're doing a vertical uh litter transition to the top of the sea can um you know you nobody can physically touch the ground within six to ten feet um and of course you got to do a transition into the middle and then from the middle back up onto the first sea can 
Um, and then obviously the final edge transition, the guys down below can't approach um, the secant. So you can't do a standard just you know vertical lower. You still have to kind of vector out a little bit. So um, there was a lot going on within about you know 60 feet to 80 feet. And um, I think we were pushing the time limit on that one for sure. That was a challenge. But uh, we got it done, and I think our technique was kind of unorthodox. I think a lot of people questioned it at first. Um, did you see um, one of the – I won't mention his name, but did you see him when he looked and went cross hole to me? Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and yeah. he was like, you're going to try a yeah. cross hole on this? So we did a cross hole on that scenario that we're describing. And I think if the cans were another 10 feet apart, we really might have been out of luck. <laughs> um, if I remember it, it was probably Pat with the litter in the middle. And I think he was working his core, trying to keep his legs from touching the ground. But uh, we were in the cross hall, which we may have been the only team to do so. And it worked out well in the end. It worked out to our advantage. But it wasn't without a lot of uh, blood puff, as Axel would say. So, <laughs> yeah, because um, the two teams, there was three doing it at once. And the other the two three. teams didn't finish in time trying to do... Uh, yeah. Um, Highlands. Yeah, and to boot, that was our very first scenario, if I remember, on the yeah. Saturday morning. That was the very first Welcome we to the sun. Yeah. So I'm kind of, again, feeling out the team leadership position. Um, and we're trying to kind of wrap our heads around how exactly this rescue is supposed to go, keeping the imaginary six feet boundaries and stuff in mind. It was COVID um, before COVID. It was, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they had seen everything over there in advance. Yeah, so that one was a really, that was a really tough rescue, but we got it done. And, uh, uh, I think we scored really well on it too in the end. So yeah. it was a good it was a good confidence booster. We got it out the way and it kind of led the charge for the rest of the weekend. Right on. Um, was there anything as a team lead in you know Japan that was that you looked at and went, wow, I just wasn't expecting that. Like so, you know, and of, of the whole event, it could have been from the logistics to the operations. Was there anything that really kind of threw you for a loop that people may be interested in hearing? Um, I, you know, little things, I guess, I can't say I wasn't expecting them. I just didn't know how they were going to go. So traditionally in... You mean like Norm smashing up a car? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I knew going over there, uh, I was kind of communicating with one of the event organizers about um, some of the logistics, making sure we were lined up with timings and where to be and when um, and equipment and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I knew going into language was going to be a huge challenge for us. Um, typically in the moor, uh, English has been a little easier to find and we can for the most part get by in a little bit of French here and there and charades always comes into play. Um, in Japan, uh, we knew this was going to be, um, a completely different challenge. So we had an awesome interpreter that was assigned to us for the whole weekend she was, was she was unbelievable. She was unbelievable. She was really, really fantastic. Um, but, you know, and in all fairness to her, a lot of the words and a lot of the terminology we use, um, such as mechanical advantage, maybe doesn't translate very well in Japanese. And if it does, um, it doesn't translate directly. And so it's hard for her to kind of wrap her head around what we're trying to say. Um, so we, I definitely had my challenges in terms of really understanding what the task was, what the scenario was, what the challenge was. Um, I mean, there were times where they, I think they had to stop us a couple of times because we were doing something that apparently was was a no-go when I had to try to reason with them, like, hey, I'm like, we're not trying to do anything silly here. We just, 
like that wasn't explained in the briefing. That didn't make its way through the translator. I think the Ferris wheel, we actually threw ropes into play and they just <laughs> ran over like the big X's with their hands. Like, whoa, we're yeah. going to restart this. You guys are doing something <laughs> totally different. Totally, yeah. There was, there was a few kind of panicked looks on their faces from the stuff we were doing. Um, and then, of course, afterwards, you know, everybody that uh, knows me knows I'm going to fight for every point we can get. <laughs> There's a couple of stories about that. But so, you know, I found myself trying to reason with with a, a controller who only spoke Japanese, no English, and I'm, uh, I only speak English, no Japanese. Um, so everything is going through the interpreter, which gets lost in translation and obviously takes more time. And so or other times you're dealing with a controller that may only speak Chinese that was being translated into Japanese mm -hmm. through an interpreter Different. being translated into English. So there's totally. two interpreters. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I didn't expect it to be that much of a challenge. I knew it was going to be a challenge, but maybe I let my guard down based on um, previous competitions that we've done overseas. Um, so that one really, uh, really threw me for a loop a couple of times and uh, definitely pushed the frustration levels up a little bit because I mean, we all know communication is fundamental in anything you do. And when there's points on the line for everything you're doing, um, you want to know everything, uh, all the details possible in the right words. So um, I, for me, that was kind of the biggest thing I didn't really anticipate, um, kind of going over there. I didn't really know. I didn't really expect that, I guess. Yeah. Right on. Um, I got some quick rapid fire questions for you, but sure. before that, is there anything else you want to add in about the team lead and about Japan in general? Uh, you know what? For, I have to say as well, um, the Japan Grimp event was probably one of the best organized events, uh, in terms of Grimp that we've been to. Um, it was really well put together. Um, the logistics, the timings ran super smooth. Uh, there's a ton of support staff, really helpful. Everything was really, really well done. So the event itself took a huge bunch of stress off of me because I wasn't panicking about shoots. Are we in the right spot? Are we not in the right spot? Um, that being said, yeah, in terms of leadership, and that, that was my first crack at it with this team, um, there's a lot of weight riding on, I don't think just me as a leader, but anytime we do these, uh, we're representing a, a rescue company. And so our placing and our performance has a little more weight to it than uh, you know, perhaps a fire department that's uh, civilian-led. So um, definitely going into it, that's on the back of your mind that there's an expectation of, of performing well. Um, and uh, that kind of you know, weighs on you. However, I got to say by Sunday night, like it seems to with every grimp, um, once that's all done, it's off your shoulders and you know, you're, you're into the post-event activities. Uh, you can't wait to do it again. Like you want to get right back to it, you know. As the owner of the company, you'd be amazed at how many sleepless nights or when we chat with the other owners where it's like, you know, do you want to do this? Like you're putting a lot of reputation on the line and you should, I mean, try phoning an insurance company. Yeah. Hey, this is what we want to do today. We want you to insure us to go to Japan and hang off of Ferris wheels <laughs> while they're still in motion. No, it's safe, really. Just trust us, yeah. right? Yeah. And I mean, as, as of now, we get, it's pretty much carte blanche. But yeah. the first few times, I mean, yeah. I basically had to give them everything, including some of my firstborn children <laughs> to, to make this happen. But yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean... There's so much that goes into it representing the company. I mean, you've got international clients that uh, the last thing that you want the word spreading is that, like, geez, these guys didn't know what they were doing. They really... <laughs> they dropped the they dude. They shut the bed. Yeah, exactly. Something catastrophic happened, and there's no shortage of cameras out there as well to capture everything. Um, not to mention, it seems like when we go over there, 
uh, we seem to have a bit of a following uh, and a little bit of a crowd forms around us. So um, there's definitely a lot of people watching and I think, um, you know, should something go sideways, it'll make its way around the rescue community pretty darn quick. So, But on the flip side, from my point of view, it's this is the best type of event for our staff to attend. I mean, the experience that I feel that you guys get over there, both in the leadership and in the follower positions and doing this, I mean... I think we've got close to 30 people now that have run a, run through a grimp in some capacity here in this company. Yeah. And I think everyone to a man and woman, we've had two women go through this as well, say without a doubt it is, as far as rescue, as close to the real thing as you can get. Without a shadow of a doubt, there's, there's no better way to, to really test what you got. You could do all the courses under the sun, read all the articles, um, do everything you can, but until you're kind of thrown at it. Um, and of course, aside from a real rescue, um, you never really know what you got in terms of how things actually handle and, and it, things aren't quite as planned out as well, um, how you react and how you improvise. So these grim competitions, I mean, I remember the first one I went to, I was a deer in the headlights. Um, and now, you know, here I am four years later leading the team. So um, yeah, there's, there's no better way to kind of um, improve yourself all around as a rescue technician than, than these grim competitions. Peru 2021. <laughs> yeah. Si, <laughs> yeah. senor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my Spanish for sure. Um, any other comments on team leadership or grim from that, your side? No, uh, it, was, it was an awesome experience. As I said, roller coaster of emotions, um, ton of stress leading up to it, um, ton of stress during the event. Um, <laughs> so just for, stress up just until Sunday night. Stress. Yeah, bless Norm. I was rooming with Norm. And uh, he's my little counselor. Um, but as I said, as of Sunday night, uh, you just, yeah, you want to get right back to it. So, Well, you did a great uh, job. I mean, yeah, all the guys have done a great job doing this. I've, it's been great to see people get through and take up that position. So That's been fun. All right, a couple of real quick questions. Sure. Favorite personal descent control device? Ah, um, good one. I would have to say... Probably the Druid Pro or the rig, the newer rig. And if uh, Jack Perry can convince the guys from camp to come up with a Druid Pro that opens without taking it off your carabiner, the Druid Pro might slide up to the top of the list. Favorite carabiner? Uh, Rock O Oval. Favorite lanyard? Petzl Adjust. Are you an Aztec or are you a Grillion oh, guy? Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> Grillion, hands down. I'm sorry. I don't care much for the Aztec at all. Sorry, Norm. Best harness or favorite harness right now? Uh, Petzl Aveo. Um, I've got the, the one from, geez, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, something like that. Okay. Still <laughs> like it's being changed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. And I'm going to change out soon, but uh, yeah. Uh, helmet. Uh, how to go wrong with the cask uh, super plasma okay rescue shoe and I, I laugh because I had this question written down in your first <laughs> grim you're wearing Jamaican five yeah. pounds and I'm wearing Vans but no kidding hey yeah uh, you gotta look that up you gotta put that picture up at the podcast um, yeah. rescue shoe um, what do we have now the, the Arbor shoes the Arbor pros you I like think. the Evo 2 Arb yeah and for not because of how slick it is with the cool clipping point in the laces, although that's a real good one, but um, for me, the comfort level, the weight, and, and imperative for me personally, the ankle support, um, that one I think I've settled on as, as my go-to rescue shoe. Yeah, yeah, It's grippy, 
Um, it's a little warm, but uh, but all around, I think that's that's my go-to. Right on. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, and I yeah, uh, appreciate all the stuff. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it.